Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. The Commerce Department says the U.S. economy grew by an annualized 3.3% in the fourth quarter of 2023, beating most expectations by a substantial amount. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will talk about the health of the economy and the people's perceptions of it at the Economic Club of Chicago. And President Joe Biden announces infrastructure grants in Superior, Wisconsin. More uncertainty surrounding U.S. border security negotiations in the U.S. Senate. They were to be linked to U.S. aid to Ukraine, but after Republican leader Mitch McConnell reportedly said because Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump would rather not have an agreement and use the issue in the campaign, the two issues may now be considered separately. Donald Trump testifies in the defamation trial against him brought by columnist E. Jean Carroll after a previous jury found that Donald Trump sexually abused her. This took place in New York City. Former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro sentenced to four months in jail for defying a subpoena from the U.S. House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. His lawyers have already filed an appeal. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, says the health committee he chairs will be voting on subpoenas for two pharmaceutical company CEOs to testify about high drug prices. A Senate hearing today on the National Flood Insurance Program, whose latest in a long line of temporary authorizations expires in just over a week. And the Pentagon announces the U.S. and Iraq will start talks on ending the U.S.-led military coalition that has been fighting ISIS. Story from CNN, the U.S. economy remained shockingly robust in the fourth quarter to close out a remarkably strong 2023 as consumers and businesses continue to spend. Gross domestic product, a measure of all the services and goods produced, rose at a seasonally adjusted annualized 3.3% rate from October through December, the Commerce Department reported Thursday. That was slower than the 4.9% rate from July through September when American consumers splashed Out on services and goods, growth in 2023 overall registered at a robust 2.5% rate. The fourth quarter's rate trounced the 1.5% that economists were expecting, according to FactSet estimates. That was reporting from CNN. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke today at the Economic Club of Chicago and was then interviewed by Sean Connolly, the club president, and ConAgra Brands president and CEO. In your remarks, you talked about how the economy is clearly improving. We got a great GDP report. Uh, Inflation uh, has slowed down. Mortgage rates are falling. Job growth continues. The stock uh, market is hitting record highs. So that's very positive. For many Americans, though, uh, specifically voters, they tell us that the economy feels like it's heading in the wrong direction. So How do we think about, wrap our minds around the bit of a disconnect between very strong economic numbers, but an absolute level of sentiment that one might think would be stronger given those results? Well, so let me first mention that we have seen some turnaround in sentiment in recent months. Um, The University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index has moved up quite a lot. Inflation is now near-term at close to the lowest levels we've seen in that survey. So I think Americans do believe inflation's under control. And a recent, I think it was last week, Axios survey showed that when people are asked 
about how they feel about their own finances. Um, over 60% said they consider them good. And when they're asked about how they think the economy this year will compare with last year, they expect over 60% believe it's going to improve. So I think we have, of course, I don't disagree with you that we have seen um, over the last year or so some weak consumer sentiment readings. Um, Americans have been through a lot. Um, the pandemic took a tremendous toll on American lives and livelihoods and people's ways of living and on their children. And we, we were through a period in which inflation was high, higher than we had um, really seen since the late 70s or early 80s. But it has come down quickly. You mentioned the growth statistics in this morning's strong report. The inflation report for the last quarter of the year, the core PCE price index, which is a measure the Fed focuses on very heavily, came in at 2% for the last quarter of the year. And um, the uh, broader index, including food and energy, came in even lower than that. So I do think that inflation is coming well under control. At the same time, that if you go back a year and you asked um, people what they thought uh, the economy, the labor market would be um, at this point, um, they thought a recession was all but inevitable. And clearly, we haven't seen that. We continue to have a very strong labor market, although perhaps some of the pressures in the labor market are easing somewhat, but good, strong labor market. Um, and so I think Americans have been through a period, in spite of the fact that inflation's come down, if you go back to pre-pandemic um, and look at the level of prices, some things that are important in budgets, um, rental apartments, um, food, they, they are up, you know, in some cases, say 20%. Um, and so there was a period in which that was a great concern. Prices for a while increased more than wages. Now, the opposite is true. Wages are now increasing at a faster rate than inflation. People are getting ahead. They're seeing their fortunes improve. And I believe if inflation stays low, um, they'll begin to regain their confidence in the economy. And I, I think we're seeing that that's possible. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at the Economic Club of Chicago. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that as Donald Trump inches closer to capturing the Republican nomination for president, President Joe Biden is returning to an area of the country decimated by industrial outsourcing and emblematic of the fight before him. President Biden on Thursday visiting the Wisconsin border city of Superior in the northwestern corner of the state across Lake Superior's St. Louis Bay from Duluth, Minnesota, two blue communities that used to rely on heavy industry and mining and are now surrounded by an area that has grown more favorable to Trump as those jobs have evaporated. Biden visiting Earth Rider Brewery in Superior 
to discuss how his administration is, according to the White House, rebuilding our infrastructure, lowering costs, spurring a small business boom, and creating good-paying jobs. That was the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. While there, President Biden mentioned the gross domestic product report from the Commerce Department this morning. And just today, we learned the economy of the United States grew by 3.1 percent last year. I don't want to bore you with all the detail, but, you know, the experts from the time I got elected were insisting that a recession was just around the corner. Every month there was going to be a recession. Well, you know, uh, we've got really strong growth. Listen to this. Here's this morning's headlines from The Wall Street Journal and other papers. Quote, U.S. shatters expectations. Second headline, the U.S. economy boomed in 2023. Third, U.S. economy grew at a shocking pace. (laughs) I love that shocking pace, (laughs) Pete. But my favorite is from the Wall Street Journal. Quote, what recession? Growth ended accelerating in 2023. Folks, look. And by the way, the economic growth is stronger than we had during the Trump administration. My predecessor recently said he was actually hoping for the economy to crash. His quote, hoping for the economy to crash. Can you believe it? Uh, Well, he said he's hoping because he hopes it happens soon while I'm still president. That's what he's hoping for. Well, thanks to the American people, America now has the strongest growth, the lowest inflation rate of any major economy in the world. It's because of you. We obviously have more work to do, but we're making real progress, building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up and not the top down. President Biden today in Superior, Wisconsin. He also announced $1 billion in new funding to replace a 60-year-old bridge in the area, money coming from the bipartisan infrastructure law and part of a $4.9 billion investment towards 37 transportation infrastructure projects across the country. In Washington, D.C., Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, the minority leader, spoke on the Senate floor about President Biden and the economy, referencing a speech that the president made yesterday. Yesterday, President Biden offered an eerily honest assessment of the State of the Union. Quote, we're fundamentally changing the economy in this country and everyone's getting a little worried about it. I don't say this very often. But the president's right about that. The historic inflation brought on by Washington Democrats' reckless spending sent the prices of everyday essentials from groceries to home heating literally through the roof. And as working families grapple with shrinking dollars, credit card spending and unpaid balances rose last year. Of course, lower income households with less of a cushion are the ones most affected by Democrats' inflation. As one analyst put it, quote, the further you go down in income levels or the further you go down in wealth levels, the cumulative impact of inflation has really taken a toll. And if the high prices on fuel and groceries weren't enough, cities are also facing staggering surges in violent crime. Here in Washington, homicides, carjackings, and robberies surged last year. More people were murdered in our nation's capital last year than in any year since 1997. Just last Thursday, a 23-year-old was shot and killed while he was walking home from an event at a local church. 
The young man had moved to Washington to spend a year volunteering with at-risk youth in the community. His friends described him as a deeply caring guy who always worked hard to understand what people were saying. Now, in a city that has lost its grip on law and order, this young man joins a growing list of victims. Stable prices and safe streets. These are the two of the most basic responsibilities of government. But from the halls to the White House. From city halls to the White House, elected Democrats are literally failing the American people. Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, Republican from Kentucky, on the Senate floor. He began by quoting President Biden from yesterday's speech at the United Auto Workers Conference in Washington as he was getting that union endorsement. The president, in the fuller quote, said, we have a big fight in front of us. We're fundamentally changing the economy in this country, and everybody is getting a little worried about it. The very powerful, some are seeing the light, but changing the economy, taking it from an economy that takes care of those at the top and changing an economy that gives people who built this country a fair shot. Wall Street today, the Dow up 242, NASDAQ up 28, S&P up 25. A political article on the Senate negotiations on U.S. border security as part of the president's $100 billion national security request for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan reads that Senate Republicans are racked with confusion about the status of a potential deal that would strengthen border policies and unlock aid for Ukraine after Mitch McConnell acknowledged the increasingly tough politics behind it. McConnell's private admission of uncertainty about talks he had supported came at a critical time. Negotiators are struggling to lock down an agreement after months of back and forth, with former President Donald Trump and conservatives ramping up pressure to kill any deal ahead of the November election. During a closed-door GOP meeting on Wednesday, McConnell told colleagues that Trump does not want a deal on immigration restrictions so he can use the issue in the presidential campaign, remarks that left some Senate Republicans paralyzed Thursday over where to go next. Conservatives argue that the tide had shifted against linking the Ukraine aid and border security. Some McConnell allies said they're still seeking a deal, and others said they're waiting for McConnell's next move. That was from Politico. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, spoke to reporters today about this. It was hard for me to see uh, what Leader McConnell was uh, uh, was suggesting. Uh, he seemed to be of two minds in the conversation. Uh, but reading the reports this morning uh, uh, and the fact that he hasn't corrected them suggests that uh, he is inclined to uh, uh, listen to what uh, former President Trump wants. And former President Trump has indicated to senators that uh, he does not want us to solve the problem at the border. Uh, he wants to lay the blame for the border at Biden. Uh, and the idea that that someone running for president would say, please hurt the country so I can blame my opponent and help my politics is a, uh, uh, a shocking uh, uh, development. Do you, think that, do you think this is what he wants, the issue, Donald Trump? This is what he's oh, I, I, think, I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, speaking to reporters on Capitol Hill. Senator James Langford, Republican of Oklahoma, is the lead negotiator on the Republican side 
on the border security issue. He was also asked by reporters in the hallway of a Senate office building about what Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell meant when he reportedly told Republican senators in the closed meeting on Wednesday on border security that the politics have changed. I think he was just expressing what's the reality on the ground. What are we all looking at? Because there are some people that are saying, hey, based on the politics of where we are in presidential politics right now, we should slow down or not do this or whatever it may be. The reality is still the same. We have millions of people that are crossing our border right now. We need to be able to address that. We've had tens of thousands of people that this administration declared special interest aliens, meaning that by definition, they're a national security risk and they're being released in the country. So at any time for us to be able to say, well, let's keep having more people that are national security risks released in the country and think that's a good idea. I just don't. Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, Punchbowl News reporter Max Cohen posting a quote from Senator Christopher Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, the lead Senate Democrat negotiator on border security. And that quote is, I think the Republican conference is going to make a decision in the next 24 hours as to whether they actually want to get something done or whether they want to leave the border a mess for political reasons. And he added, none of the work is stopped on finalizing text. CNN reporter Manu Raju posting this 30-second clip of Senator Murphy with a group of reporters. We don't live in a world today in which one person inside the Republican Party holds so much power that they could stop a bipartisan bill to try to give the president um, additional power at the border to make more sense of our immigration policy. I would hope that one person isn't so powerful inside the Republican Party uh, to hand Ukraine to Vladimir Putin, but we'll find out the answer to that. I'm just going to keep my head down. Um, you know, I'm working with partners who want a deal. Senator Christopher Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Back to the Politico article, more senators Talking with them, Senator Roger Wicker, Republican of Mississippi, said it's yet to be decided where the party goes, whether to keep seeking a combined border Ukraine deal or to change up strategies. The Senate Minority Whip John Thune, Republican of South Dakota, told reporters, we're at a critical moment and we've got to drive hard to get this done. If we can't get there, then we'll go to plan B. But I think for now, at least, there's still an attempt being made to try and reach a conclusion that would satisfy a lot of Republicans. Even if a bipartisan border security deal comes out of the Senate, Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, made it clear today in an interview on Real America's Voice TV that the House Republican majority will likely not accept it. The Senate can negotiate whatever they want. But having seen some of the outlines from that negotiation, that bill's dead on arrival in the House of Representatives. Let me explain why. They want to canonize 5,000 people being able to come in per day. 5,000 per day is a Mm. catastrophe. That's about 150,000 people a month, about 1.8 million people per year. That's terrible. Jay Johnson, who worked under Barack Obama, said that if you have 1,000 entrants per per day, you have a crisis. The Senate deal allows for 5,000 per day before any emergency procedures kick in. Just based on that alone, it's a terrible deal. So the Senate could pass what they want. That is dead on arrival in the House. Speaker Johnson has said that's dead on arrival in the House. What is going to matter is H.R. 2. It's what we pass. It actually secures our border. It gets that job done. Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican from Florida on Real America's Voice TV. The House is not in session this week. They are back next week. And the Senate has now completed its legislative work for the week. They will be in Friday, but only for a pro forma session.
Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, was interviewed today on Fox News about border security and immigration. And he said the Biden administration has violated the U.S. Constitution's original agreement between the states and the federal government. It was the states that created the United States. And when the states voted to uh, create the United States and have a constitution, uh, included in that agreement was the compact that the federal government would take care of the states. And Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution speaks to that and, and says that uh, if the federal government does not take care of the states and the states are in danger, well, we can ask the federal government to live up to its obligation. Then the authors of the Constitution knew there would be times when the federal government would not live up to its duty. And so they empowered states in Article 1, Section 10, the right of self-defense. And what Texas is asserting is our Article 1, Section 10 right of self-defense because the President of the United States is not fulfilling his duty to enforce the laws passed by Congress that deny illegal entry into the United States. Governor, will you instruct your officers to physically prevent federal officers from accessing that part of the border? So uh, what Texas is doing is just very simple. And, and, and that is because the Biden administration has really truly abdicated its responsibility to secure the border and enforce the laws, Texas very simply is securing the border. And so we put up the razor wire that you were talking about, Bill, and uh, we put up all these barricades that actually have denied illegal entry. Uh, and as you pointed out also in that screen, that there are criminals coming across our border. Texas has a right as a state to stop criminals from coming into our state, to make arrests of those criminals. And we have National Guard, as well as Texas Department of Public Safety officers who are there to make those arrests and to deny illegal entry. And Joe Biden actually does have an option here. Joe Biden's option is to enforce the laws of the United States and stop this illegal entry. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Republican, interviewed on Fox News. This is Washington Today. Donald Trump, former president and 2024 Republican presidential candidate, testified today in a civil trial for E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit against him. A previous jury found Donald Trump did sexually abuse her in a department store about 30 years ago. The New York Times, with a summary of what happened inside the courtroom, there were no cameras available there, it reads... His testimony lasted less than five minutes. A lawyer from Mr. Trump, Alina Haba, asked the former president whether he stood by his remarks, in which he called Ms. Carroll a liar. 100% yes, Mr. Trump said. She said something I considered a false accusation. The judge struck that second statement, and Ms. Haba asked Mr. Trump whether he intended to hurt Ms. Carroll. He said, no, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly the presidency, Mr. Trump added. The defense quickly rested. The cross-examination was similarly brief. Ms. Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, asked only a couple of questions. She asked if this was the first trial he had attended, where Ms. Carroll was the plaintiff. He said yes. She then asked if he listened to the advice of counsel at the last trial, prompting an objection from the defense. That was from the New York Times. The defense has rested. Closing arguments in the case will happen on Friday. And E. Jean Carroll is seeking $10 million dollars in the defamation suit. From ABC News, former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro was sentenced to four months in jail in order to pay a $9,500 fine Thursday for defying a congressional subpoena to cooperate with the House Select Committee 
that investigated the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Navarro was convicted in September on one count of contempt of Congress over his refusal to appear for a deposition in front of the committee and on a second count for refusing to produce documents. That was from ABC News. Peter Navarro spoke to reporters outside the courthouse in Washington, D.C. You will hear protesters behind him making noise with a whistle and a bell. The top line here is that uh, Mr. Woodward has already filed the appeal uh, in this case. This is a case of first impressions that I have said from day one is destined for the Supreme Court. It is a case that really asks the important question of whether a senior White House aide and alter ego of the president can be compelled to testify by Congress. And this is where we're at. Unfortunately, um, the opposition behind us won't let this be heard, but we're going to do our best here. Uh, the one thing I would say before we, um, before I turn it over to Mr. Brand, uh, defendpeter.com, defendpeter.com. Uh, this case is costing already almost a million dollars. I'm going to need your support, folks, for the appeal, defendpeter.com. Peter Navarro, former White House advisor to former President Donald Trump outside the Washington, D.C. courthouse after his sentence of four months in jail and $9,500 fine for not complying with the subpoena from the U.S. House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Again, from the ABC News article at his sentencing hearing, Navarro told the U.S. District Judge he had an honest belief that executive privilege had been invoked by former President Donald Trump when he received the subpoena, an argument that prosecutors had disputed at trial. The former chair of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack, Congressman Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, posting Peter Navarro abandoned his oath to the Constitution and abused the public trust while he worked as a trade advisor to former President Trump when in the days leading up to January 6th, he worked to keep a defeated incumbent in the White House. He abused it again when he willfully defied a lawful subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee to answer questions about the lead-up to that deadly day. Last summer's guilty verdict and today's sentence are the consequence of Mr. Navarro's stubborn insistence that his short stint in the executive branch somehow put him above the law. I applaud the U.S. attorneys for their hard work in bringing this case to a successful conclusion. That statement from Congressman Benny Thompson. Another former Donald Trump advisor, Steve Bannon, was also sentenced to four months for the same crime, and that too is being appealed. The Biden administration is promoting the importance of safely storing firearms to protect children. First Lady Jill Biden was part of today's program at the White House with school principals. And the White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton spoke to reporters about it as they all flew on Air Force One. The First Lady Secretary Cardona, the new White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention, uh, and 70 principals from across the country are convening at the White House today for a town hall uh, to announce a new set of actions we're taking to ramp up uh, uh, safe gun storage in communities across the country. Um, you've heard us talk about the epidemic of gun violence in America and the fact that gun violence is the number one killer of kids in our country. Uh, we know that a big factor in that uh, statistic is the fact that nearly five billion children are living in homes with unsecured weapons. We know that most school shootings, mass shootings uh, occur 
uh, with weapons that were obtained at the, at, in, in a school shooter's home or in the home of a family member or friend. We also know that unsecured weapons are a big contributor to self-inflicted wounds uh, that uh, uh, children are experiencing. So uh, today's action, the education department is working with principals across the country to ramp up uh, community uh, education about the importance of safe storage of guns so that we can uh, save more kids' lives. The White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton at a news conference aboard Air Force One. From Associated Press, as part of the announcement, the Justice Department will release a guide to safe firearm storage and the Education Department will distribute materials to schools that can be shared with families. Administration has relied on initiatives like this one, which involves limited executive action and promoting voluntary measures at a time when tougher gun control proposals are non-starters in Congress. There's no federal law requiring gun owners to lock up their firearms, although the White House has encouraged such rules to be implemented at the state level. That was from Associated Press. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free and wherever you find your podcasts. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, writes The Hill, said that he is confident that forcing drug company CEOs to testify about high prices can result in meaningful changes. Less than a week ahead of a planned vote to subpoena the CEOs of Johnson & Johnson and Merck, the chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, said having them testify is more than political theater. That was from The Hill. Here's Senator Sanders at today's news conference. As a result of our invitation... Chris Berner, the CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb, has agreed to voluntarily testify before the Health Committee, and we very much appreciate that. Unfortunately, up to this point, the CEOs of Johnson & Johnson and Merck have rejected our invitation. They apparently feel that they do not have to explain to the American people why prescription drug prices in this country are so outrageously high. As a result, That puts the Health Committee, the Health Education Labor Committee, in the position of having to subpoena these CEOs in order to have them testify. That vote will take place this Wednesday, January 31st at 11 a.m. The CEO of Merck needs to explain to the American people why they charge diabetes patients in the United States $6,900. For Genuvia, when the exact same product can be purchased in Canada for $900 and just $200 in France. Pretty simple question, isn't it? How come you're charging those guys a fraction of what you're charging us? We want the CEO of Johnson & Johnson to explain to the American people why they charge Americans with arthritis $79,000 for Stolara when it can be purchased for just $16,000 in the United Kingdom. We want the CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb to tell us why they're charging patients here $7,100 for Eliquist, 
when the same product can be purchased for just $900 in Canada and $650 in France? I think it's an interesting question. You know, I think millions of Americans would love to know why we are charged 10 times more than other countries for the same exact product. And let me be very clear. These companies that we want to bring before us, they're not struggling companies desperately needing to raise prices to survive. 2022, Johnson & Johnson made nearly $18 billion in profits, paid its CEO over $27 million in compensation, spent over $17 billion in stock buybacks and dividends. That same year, Merck made $14 billion in profits, handed over $7 billion in dividends, paid their CEO $52 million. And Bristol-Myers Squibb made $6.3 billion in profits, while recently spending over $12 billion on stock buybacks and provided their CEO with $41 million in compensation. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee chair at a news conference today. The article from TheHill.com says that the subpoenas that Senator Sanders says the committee will be voting on will be the first issued by the HELP Committee in more than 40 years. And a subpoena vote requires only a simple majority of the committee's members, so if all the Democrats agree, they wouldn't need any Republican votes. In a statement, the committee's ranking member, Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, said that Senator Sanders didn't seem interested in holding a bipartisan hearing that could result in meaningful legislation and was instead focused on how many CEOs we can drag to the stocks. Senator Cassidy's statement goes on. It's not surprising these CEOs do not expect to be given a fair shake by this committee. These companies offered to send their executives in charge of the policies in question, which could have led to a more insightful hearing. Senator Cassidy took part in a hearing that C-SPAN covered today on a completely different issue, the National Flood Insurance Program, whose latest temporary authorization will expire on February 2nd. Senator Cassidy introduced one of the witnesses today. He previewed it earlier this week in a video in which he also called for reforms to the National Flood Insurance Program. I'm happy to announce that on Thursday, the U.S. Senate Banking Committee will hold a hearing on the National Flood Insurance Program. One of the witnesses will be Michael Heck, who is the president and CEO of Greater New Orleans, Inc. There will be other people we have suggested from Louisiana, but it's not my call as to who they choose. But we do think there's a lot of folks from Louisiana that could come to this hearing and give an, it would give them an opportunity to tell Americans what Louisianians have been telling me for years, that, that Biden's risk rating 2.0 is crushing them and will crush people in any state which has a need for flood insurance. They need relief. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimates that roughly 900,000 policyholders will drop out of the program in the next 10 years because of risk rating 2.0 mapping. Last June, I reintroduced the National Flood Insurance Program Reauthorization Act of 2023. It caps premium hikes. It gives means-tested discounts for those with excessive hikes and does other things to make the program more affordable more sustainable and more accountable. It also ensures that people in Louisiana can afford to live in a place that they grew up and they don't have to drop their flood insurance coverage in order to pay the mortgage. Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, in a video a couple of days ago ahead of today's Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee hearing on the flood insurance program about that risk rating 2.0 he mentioned. 
A government accountability office report from last summer reads that FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program is charged with keeping flood insurance affordable and staying financially solvent. But a historical focus on affordability has led to insurance premiums being lower than they should be. The program hasn't collected enough revenue to pay claims and has had to borrow billions from the Treasury. FEMA revamped how it sets premiums in 2021, more closely aligning them with the flood risk of individual properties. But affordability concerns accompany the premium increases some will experience. That was from the GAO report. Back to today's Senate hearing, here is Senator John Tester, Democrat from Montana, questioning three witnesses. Michael Hecht, President and CEO of of Greater New Orleans, Inc., Daniel Kanuski, former FEMA acting deputy administrator in the Trump administration, and Steve Patterson, mayor of Athens, Ohio, a Democrat. We're on our 28th straight short-term extension of the national flood insurance, um, beyond ridiculous, quite honestly. Um, My question is for all three of you, uh, but I only want you to use it for 30 seconds because you could all talk on it for 10 minutes, and that is from or this committee's standpoint, what would you prioritize, besides the ex- extension baloney, what would you prioritize in an NFIP bill uh, as the most important qualities? Go ahead. We'll start with you, Mr. Heck. Right. And th- thank you, Senator. Um, first would be affordability, because we want to make sure that people stay in the program and it doesn't go into a death spiral. Uh, the second would be comprehensibility, so people understand what they can do to make improvements in what they're paying for. And the third, most fundamentally, would be money for mitigation because a hazard avoidance, reducing exposure, is the center of the universe, and it's how we're going to improve this for our nation over time. Thank you. Okay, go ahead, Mr. Kanuski. My answer is going to be hazard mitigation. Okay. Hazard mitigation because not only does it protect existing homeowners against their existing risk, it helps protect homeowners in the future and any anyone else who purchases that home in the future against okay. future risk. Okay. It also gets at the affordability issue mm-hmm. because if you've reduced your risk, you should also be able to reduce your rates. Okay. Mayor Patterson. I would have to echo the affordability. Um, I would also recommend looking hard at the CDBG DR to streamline that. I, I come from one of the three chronically distressed counties in the state of Ohio. And when I look at affordability and look at my, my residents and my constituents, um, it's, it's a big challenge when you live in the chronically distressed part of the state. Um, and, and that's not just in our state. I'm, I look at all of Appalachia and see the exact same thing. It's the affordability and streamlining access to CDBGDR to where it's getting out more quickly and more effectively. Part of today's Senate committee hearing on the National Flood Insurance Program. You can find the full hearing at our website, Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee at cspan.org, our video library. Again, temporary authorization for the program expires February 2nd. The FEMA website, Federal Emergency Management Agency, has a section that reads, should the NFIP's authorization lapse, FEMA would still have authority to ensure the payment of valid claims with available funds. However, FEMA would stop selling and renewing policies for millions of properties in communities across the nation. Nationwide, the National Association of Realtors estimates that a lapse might impact approximately 1,300 property sales each day, roughly 40,000 closings per month.
This is Washington Today. Turning to foreign affairs, the story from the Washington Post, President Biden plans to dispatch CIA Director William J. Burns in the coming days to help broker an ambitious deal between Hamas and Israel that would involve the release of all remaining hostages held in Gaza and the longest accession of hostilities since the war began last year, according to officials familiar with the matter, unnamed. A White House spokesperson, John Kirby, was asked to comment. He held a news conference on Air Force One. Admiral, there were reports that came out while we were in midair that President Biden is tapping uh, CIA Director Burns to, uh, to help broker a hostage deal. Can you give us more information on that? I'd refer you to the CIA for more on, uh, on Director Burns' uh, travel and activities. He has been, uh, as I think you know, involved in helping us uh, with uh, the hostage deal that was in place and, and, uh, and trying to help us pursue another one. I would just tell you that, as I've said many times, the discussions that we're having about trying to get a renewed hostage deal in place are sober and they're serious. And Brett McGurk is in the region as we speak, also trying to see what we can do to get one moving. And related to that, sorry, um, can I ask uh, the, the government's reaction to the leaked comments from Prime Minister Netanyahu saying Qatar's role in the hostage talks were uh, problematic? Does that concern uh, the administration um, and, and, the, and the prospects of potentially upsetting those delicate hostage negotiations? I don't think I'm going to comment on leaked comments attributable to another foreign leader. Uh, the Israeli people want their loved ones back. We want to make sure we get our American hostages back to their families where they belong. There's a lot of energy being put at this across the region in, uh, with our Israeli counterparts as well as our other counterparts, including the Qataris. And we're just going to keep working at that. John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council, part of a news conference on Air Force One. An ABC News story reads that roughly 130 hostages are still imprisoned in Gaza, including as many as six Americans, according to the Israeli and U.S. governments. John Kirby also announced today that President Biden will be hosting the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida for a state visit at the White House on April 10th. President Biden hosted for state visits the leaders of Australia last October and India last June, who, along with the U.S. and Japan, comprised the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or Quad Alliance, designed to counter China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. Story from AP, the United States and Iraq expect to begin talks soon to wind down the mission of a U.S.-led military coalition formed to fight the Islamic State group in Iraq. Both governments said Thursday the announcement comes as U.S. forces in Iraq have been increasingly targeted by Iran-backed militias, though the U.S. says the time frame for the discussions is not related to the attacks. That's the AP story. The Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh gave more details in an opening statement at her news conference. Today, the department announced that the United States and the government of Iraq will start working group meetings of the U.S.-Iraq Higher Military Commission in the coming days, initiating a process the two sides committed to during the U.S.-Iraq Joint Security Cooperation Dialogue in Washington, D.C. on August 7th through 8th um, in 2023. During that August 2023 meeting, the U.S. and Iraq committed to start the HMC to discuss the coalition's mission to defeat ISIS that will transition on a timeline that considers three key factors, the threat from ISIS, operational and, and environmental requirements, and the Iraqi security forces capability levels. 
Expert working groups of military and defense professionals will examine these three factors and advise the HMC on the most effective evolution of the de-ISIS coalition mission, ensuring that ISIS can never resurge in consultation with coalition partners at all stages of the process. Let me be clear, the HMC meeting is not a negotiation about the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq. The United States and the coalition are in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government to fight ISIS. Our Iraqi partners have assured us of their commitment towards working together to shape this future on U.S. military presence and the enduring defeat of ISIS. The HMC will enable the transition to an, an enduring bilateral security partnership between the U.S. and Iraq, building on the successes of the de-ISIS campaign in partnership with the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve. The U.S. and Iraq have enjoyed a deep and productive partnership on security matters in the 10 years since the Iraqi government invited the United States and the coalition to fight ISIS, including the seven years since the territorial defeat of ISIS in Iraq. The start of the HMC process ref reflects the evolving U.S.-Iraq bilateral relationship, and it underscores our commitment to deepen our security cooperation to advance stability within Iraq and the region. The Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh opening up her news conference today at the Pentagon. More from the Associated Press article, there are an estimated 2,500 U.S. troops deployed to Iraq now. An eventual reduction in forces raises questions about how the U.S. would be able to similarly sustain its counter-IS or ISIS mission in Syria without troops in Iraq. The forward bases in Syria, where the U.S. maintains about 900 troops, get airlift and logistical support from the U.S. installations in Iraq. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free, and get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. Music.